the Holy Gospel according to St. John. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The Gospel of the Lord. When you come in, I met uh, Ted, <laughs> who was kind enough to bring my things in for me, and uh, Pastor Detweiler, who was kind enough to say, I'm your point person. So I, too, am grateful for the opportunity to be with you today. And I have to say this before I start um, the message. Um, Really, God and I had this conversation, um, and I talked to God like I'm talking to you. And so I'm like, I'm going to Upper Dublin today, and I have the message prepared that I believe God put in my heart. And I was thinking Dr. Martin Luther King was an African-American male Baptist preacher And I said, I am going to do him a disservice to try to put this message into the Lutheran 12 to 15 minutes. (laughs) But beloved, I'm going to try my best. Grace, peace, power, and love in the name of the one who can do all things but fail, Jesus Christ. As I pondered what to say today, I must admit I was a bit unsettled. You may ask why unsettled. Unsettled because it is my experience that Dr. King's dream is still yet a dream. 
And yes, there have been significant advances in race relations, but there continue to be many challenges. For example, there are some who do not want the realities of slavery and racism taught in the school system. How will our children learn about the struggles of African Americans if not done in schools? How can you understand the challenges of the African Americans, what they face and continue to face, unless you understand how traumatic the trip on slave ships was and how the trauma led to more trauma as we were forced to work in the fields and our children were sold to other slave owners? How can you empathize with the history of African Americans if you don't know it? The division in our country is real, even palpable, and often that division presents as black versus white. Dr. King suggested that the most segregated hour in the United States is at 11 a.m. in our churches. Look at us, beloved. I wish I could say that Dr. King's dream is a reality, but I cannot. To prove my point, I decided to take portions of a sermon by Dr. King and show you what he was concerned about in 1958 still exist today. Granted, this sermon was before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but so much of what he suggested that needs to be done related to race relations still resonates today. I've highlighted some of the key components of his sermon, and you will be surprised how prophetic he really was. Portions of Dr. King's sermon title Paul's Letter to American Christians. He says, I, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to who are in America. Grace, peace be unto you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For many years, I've longed to be able to come to see you. I've heard so much of you and what you are doing. I've heard of the fascinating and astounding advances that you have made in the scientific realm. I have heard of your dashing subways and flashing airplanes. Through your scientific genius, you have been able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. Yes, you have been able to carve highways through the stratosphere, and in your world, it's possible to eat breakfast in New York and have supper in Paris, France. I've heard of your great medical advances which have resulted in the curing of many dreaded plagues and disease and thereby prolonging your lives and making for greater security and physical well-being. All of that is marvelous. You can do so many things in your day that I could not do in the Greco-Roman world of my day. In your age, you can travel distances in one day that took me three months. You have made tremendous strides in the area of scientific and technological development, but America, as I look at you from afar, I wonder whether your moral and spiritual progress has been commiserate with your scientific progress. 
You have allowed the material means by which you live to outdistance the spiritual ends for which you live. You have allowed your mentality to outrun your morality. You have allowed your civilization to outdistance your culture. And through your scientific genius, you have made of the world a neighborhood. But through your moral and spiritual genius, you have failed to make of it a brotherhood. And so, America, I would urge you to bring your moral advances in line with your scientific advances. I am impelled to write you concerning the responsibilities laid upon you to live as Christians in the midst of an unchristian world. This is what I had to do. This is what every Christian has to do. But I understand that there are many Christians in America who give their ultimate allegiance to man-made systems and customs. They are afraid to be different. Their great concern is to be accepted socially. They live by some such principle as this. Everybody is doing it, so it must be all right. Morality is merely group consensus. In your modern sociological lingo, the Moors are accepted as right ways. You have unconsciously come to believe that right is discovered by taking some sort of gallipole of the majority opinion. And how many are giving their ultimate allegiance to this way? But American Christians, I must say to you, as I said to the Roman Christians years ago, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have a dual citizenry. You live both in time and eternity, both in heaven and on earth. Therefore, your ultimate allegiance is not to the government, not to the state, not to the nation, not to any man-made institution. The Christian owes his ultimate allegiance to God. And if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to take a stand against it. I understand that you have economic system in America known as capitalism. Through this economic system, you have been able to do wonders. You have become the richest nation in the world. You have built up the greatest system of production this history has ever known. All of this is marvelous, but Americans, there is a danger that you will misuse your capitalism. I still contend that money can be the root of all evil. It can cause one to live a life of gross materialism. And I'm afraid that many among you are more concerned about making a living than making a life. You are prone to judge the success of your professions by the index of your salary and the size of the wheelbase on your automobile rather than the quality of your service to humanity. The misuse of capitalism can also lead to tragic exploitation. This has often happened in our nation. They tell me that one-tenth of one percent of the population controls more than 40 percent of the wealth. Oh, America. 
How often have you taken the necessities from the masses to give luxury to the classes? If you are to be truly a Christian nation, you must solve this problem. Now, you cannot solve the problem by turning to, commu to communism, for communism is based on an ethical relativism and a metaphysical materialism that no Christian can accept. But you can work within the framework of democracy to bring about a better distribution of wealth. You can use your powerful economic resources to wipe poverty from the face of the earth. God never intended for a group of people to live in a superfluous, inordinate wealth, while others live in abject poverty. God intends for all of God's children to have the basic necessities of life. And so I call upon you to bridge the gulf between abject poverty and superfluous wealth. Let me rush on to say something about the church. America, I must remind you, as I have said to so many others, that the church is the body of Christ. So when the church is true to its nature, it knows neither division nor disunity. But I am disturbed about what you are doing to the body of Christ. They tell me that in America you have Protestantism, more than 256 denominations. The tragedy is not so much that you have a multiplicity of denominations, but that most of them are warring against one another with a claim of absolute truth. I'm not calling for uniformity, America. I'm calling for unity. There is another thing that disturbs me to no end about the American church. You have a white church and you have a Negro church. You have allowed segregation to creep into the doors of the church. How can such a division exist in the true body of Christ? You must face the tragic fact that when you stand at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning to sing, in Christ there is no east or west, you stand at one of the most segregated hours of Christian America. They tell me that there is more integration in the entertaining world, in sports arenas, in other secular agencies than there are in the Christian church. How appalling is that? This is against everything that the Christian religion stands for. I must say to you, as I've said to so many other Christians before, that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, bond nor free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Segregation is a blatant denial of the unity which we all have in Christ the underlying philosophy of Christianity is diametrically opposed to the underlying philosophy of segregation and all of the dialectics and of the logicians can make that cannot make them lie down together. I praise your Supreme Court for rendering a great decision a few years ago and I'm happy to know that so many persons of goodwill accepted the decision as a great moral victory. 
So I would urge each of you to plead patiently with your brothers and tell them that this isn't the way. With understanding goodwill, you are obligated. Seek to change their attitudes. Let them know that standing against integration, they are not standing, not only standing against the noble precepts of your democracy, but also against the eternal edicts of God himself. Yes, America, there still needs to be an Amos to cry out to the nations. Let judgment roll down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. You must say to your brothers all over America that you have a moral obligation to press on and because of your love for America and your love for democracy, you must press on. You must realize that out of 2,500,000,000 people in this world, about 1,600,000,000 of them are colored, living in two continents, mainly Asia and Africa. 600 million in China, 400 million in India and Pakistan, 200 million in Africa, 100 million in Indonesia, more than 86 million in Japan. For years, these people have been victims of colonization, <coughs> colonism and imperialism, and now they are breaking loose. They are breaking loose from all of this, and they are saying in no certain terms that racism and colonism must go. So if your nation is to be a first-class nation, she can no longer have second-class citizens. May I say just a word to those of you who are struggling against this evil in America. Always be sure that you struggle with Christian methods and Christian weapons. Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press on for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using only the weapon of love. Let no man pull you so low as to make you hate him. Always avoid using violence in your struggle, for if you succumb to the temptation of using violence, Unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness, and your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. Many persons will recognize the urgency of seeking to eradicate the evil of segregation. There will be many Negroes who will devote their lives to the cause of freedom, there will be many white persons of goodwill and strong moral sensitivity who will dare to take a stand for justice. Honesty impels me to admit that such a stand requires a willingness to suffer and sacrifice. So don't despair if you are condemned and persecuted for righteousness sake. Whenever you take a stand for truth and justice, you are liable to scorn. Often you will be called an impractical idealist or a dangerous radical. Sometimes it might mean going to jail. If such is the case, you must honorably grace the jail. Honorably grace the jail with your presence. 
It might even mean physical death for some, but physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent life of psychological death. Then nothing could be more Christian. Don't worry about persecution, America. You're going to have that if you stand up for a great principle. I can say this with some authority because my life was a continual round of persecution. After my conversion, I was rejected by the disciples at Jerusalem. Later, I was tried for heresy at Jerusalem. I was mobbed at Ephesus and beaten in Thessalonica and depressed at Athens. But yet, I still go on. I came away from each of these experiences more persuaded than ever before that neither life nor death nor angels, nor principalities. Things present, nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end, the end of life, America. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and to avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God. Do the will of God, come what may. I must bring my writing to a close now. Timothy is waiting, waiting for me to deliver this letter and I must take leave for another church. But just before leaving, I must say to you, as I said to the church at Corinth, I still believe that love is the most durable power in all the world. As St. John says, God is love. And so he who loves is a participant in the being of God. He who hates does not know God. So American Christians, you may master the intricacies of the English language. You may possess all of the eloquence of articulate speech. But even if you speak with the tongues of men and angels you have not loved, you are become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You may ascend to the heights of the academic achievement so that you will have all knowledge. You may boast of your great institutions of learning and the boundless extent of your degrees, but all of this amounts to absolutely nothing devoid of love. So the greatest of all virtues is love. This is the thing that kept the early church moving. This is the thing that kept us moving amid the days of persecution around the Greco-Roman world. Men and women would look at us and cry out, what makes you so happy? Is it your ecclesiastical machinery? And we could answer, no. Is it your dogmas? Is it in your creeds? And we could cry out, we are happy because we have passed from death unto life. Why? Because we love. That's it. This is the thing that must keep the church moving. And America, let me say to you that this is the meaning of the cross. That event on Calvary is more than a meaningless drama that took place on the stage of history. 
It is a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the most durable power in the world. And that is, at the bottom, the heartbeat of the moral cosmos. Only through achieving this love can you expect to matriculate into the university of eternal life. I must say goodbye now. I hope this letter will find you strong in the faith. It may be that I will not get to see you in America, but I will meet you in God's eternity. Now unto him who is able to transform this midnight of injustice into a glowing daybreak of freedom and justice. To him be power and authority, majesty, dominion, now, henceforth, and forevermore. Beloved, end of letter. Beloved saints at Upper Dublin, I can only hope that you become, you continue to grow into being that beacon of love that Dr. King spoke about in this letter to American Christians. Amen. God bless you.